The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Ladies and gentlemen, Barack Obama on the collapse of the United States government's case against Michael Flynn. There is no precedent that anybody can find for uh, someone who's been charged with perjury uh, just getting off scot-free. That's the kind of stuff where you you begin to uh, get worried that basic not just institutional norms, but uh, our basic understanding of, of rule of law uh, is, 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 uh, is at risk. The very rule of law is at stake in November's U.S. elections, warns Barack Obama. Gee, that's an interesting observation. I wonder why he'd make it now. As it happens, Obama is right. He's just four years too late. The rule of law was at stake in the November 2016 election. Four years ago, senior government officials decided to use NSA data and human intelligence assets to backdoor their way into the election campaign of their political opponents. That's basically Banana Republic 101, the use of government assets to serve the political interests of the ruling party. Given the scale of what was going on, it's impossible to believe that Obama, even if he did not initiate and order it, which I'm inclined to think he did, was not aware of it and approving of it at the very minimum. Unfortunately, the Democrats had a dud of a candidate and she blew it on election night. And at that point, the Obama administration decided to weaponize the ludicrous so-called transition period. The two and a half months that the United States, uniquely in the free world, requires to respect the results of an election. And my campaign against that transition period is a little bit lonely at the moment. It would be nice if some of these uh, so-called expert constitutionalist type guys uh, would weigh in on, on that as well. It makes no sense in the modern era, even if it hadn't been perverted by the Obama administration. But if you happen to remember four years ago, uh, you might recall that uh, all those press commentators remarking throughout November, December, January, that this, quote, peaceful transfer of power is uniquely American. It's unique only in its sloth, given that most other Western nations manage to peacefully transfer power within 48 hours to a week. But the near ubiquitous deployment of this expression... Uh, rang a little odd to me, as I remarked at the time, because it gave it the vague air of a talking point that the Democrat media complex had all agreed on as a useful cover for what was really going on. Samantha Power, the the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, was buried deep in intelligence agency resources, getting the goods on Trump supporters until 11.59 a.m. Eastern Time on January 20th. Under no conceivable circumstances is the ambassador to the United Nations a spymaster who should be buried in intelligence agency resources. She's not... M, 
digging around and stuff to give instructions to 007 on his latest mission. What she was was one of the loyalist Obama aides, and she was frantically working until the last moment to hobble the incoming administration. It was the outgoing government that decided to upturn the rule of law. Obama's government uh, upturned the rule of law and made a mockery of the so-called peaceful transfer of power, ludicrous phrase. That's why Obama is now not just endorsing Joe Biden, but frantically waggling that ridiculous husk of a sock puppet who's been napping in his basement for two months, frantically waggling him all around. Because if Biden wins in November, all this goes away, and Obama wants it to go away. Uh, hence the sudden flurry of activity. Look for him to be a very active ex-president uh, if this election campaign ever reverts to normal campaign mode. OK, if it weren't for deep state conspiracy theories, there'd be no reason to get up in the morning. For everyone except essential workers, you know who you are, medical personnel, infected food supply, Burmese meat choppers, deep state coup plotters. For everybody except such essential people, life goes on, or rather, doesn't. May 11th, 2020, from my house arrest to yours. Please release me. Let me go For I can't stand it anymore To live inside just really sucks Release me and keep your lousy twelve hundred bucks I'm deemed non-essential here So I'm slumped face down in my beer like this is living death so release me before I switch to meth sing it with me you non-essential losers Seems like forever And that was Biden With his nose down in my hair Okay, okay, let's...
that's, uh, that's enough of that. Actually, the stays are being loosened just a little here and there. In the United Kingdom, starting on Wednesday, you will now be permitted to meet one other person in a public park and sit six feet apart on a park bench without being under threat of arrest, but with increased fines for lockdown abusers who sit, say, uh, four foot six apart. In France, the state has graciously consented to allow you to walk outside without having a government permit to do so upon your person. In Canada, uh, after another bunch of unusable masks from China, Justin Trudeau says, don't worry, we won't be paying full price for them. That's the West's China relationship in a mammy singer's nutshell. It's crap, but it's cheap. I can live with Justin getting down on his knees to sing mammy, but not to kowtow before Chairman Xi. Get off your knees, sonny boy. Or at least put the old kiwi polish on and give us a chorus of Rockabye, a baby with a Dixie melody. In New York, where the state has bungled everything and directly caused thousands of avoidable deaths in care homes, Governor Cuomo is saying, hey, pay no attention to that huge pile of corpses. There's a mysterious new form of COVID-related deaths that targets children. Amazing. This this disease, uh, this virus causes everything. Causes COVID toe. Uh, it uh, causes deaths in seniors and now is apparently causing deaths in children. In America, the unemployment rate is getting close to 25 percent. That's depression era. Uh, there is no more talk of flattening the curve. No more talk of V-shaped recoveries. No more talk of a vaccine by the autumn. Everything is just settling in. The temporary condition is starting to seem very permanent. Unemployment numbers aren't the only thing heading to the 30s. So is 1930s, I mean. So is, say, air travel. Instead of no-frills budget flights jamming the bodies in to fly Brits from Luton to the Costa for two weeks of sun, sangria and shagging, Aviation may be contracting to something closer to the pre-jet age, a means of travel available only to a small number of people at high cost. As I said uh, over the weekend, America spent the last 30 years giving all our manufacturing down to our medicines, down to our aspirin pills, to China. China, remarkably, then decided in the last couple of months... Basically, uh, around the time they were losing the trade war to Trump, China decided to look at what the Western world had left. Retail, dining, tourism, entertainment, live music, live sports, live theatre, big movie theatres, and managed to come up with something that totaled the entire post-manufacturing Western economy. And suddenly we're supposed to climb up the other side of that V-shaped recovery under rules that allow only 25% capacity in a restaurant, no more than two persons in a clothing shop or in a hair salon. If there are any uh, of those clothing shops left, J. Crew's gone bust, and so has Neiman Marcus. As I always say, on the question of whether or not this thing was created deliberately, it was weaponized deliberately by China, very actively. And if they had been in the business of creating consciously such a virus, what would they have done differently, given its disproportionate impact on their major economic and geopolitical competitors. 
But just for the record, US and British intelligence agencies are examining evidence of a mysterious lockdown at the Wuhan Institute of Virology last October, when cell phone data uh, showing perfectly normal telephone usage from the high security part of the lab until October 7th, uh, all that cell phone usage suddenly ceased and all mobile phone activity in that high security lab clammed up for a mysterious two and a half weeks. Right now, China's doing okay. We're in economic freefall, paying a bulk rate for defective medical equipment and accepting that the virus and its public health and economic impacts are now a permanent feature of life. Remember when they used to talk about reopening the economy? As if it was just on uh, a temporary uh, leave, like it's uh, when you go to the shop and they've got one of those signs on the door saying, back in 15 minutes. That's what we did to the global economy. We hung a sign on the door saying, back in 15 minutes. The 15 minutes came and went. And every day that goes by, there's less and less to reopen. And when we do eventually open that shop door, we'll find there's nothing in it. Ah, well, there's always increased opportunities in law enforcement. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Most of our wanker coppers have, in fact, been English wanker coppers of the day. But we have had the Northern Irish wanker coppers qualifying as Brit wankers in the United Kingdom sense. And we have had Montreal wanker coppers qualifying as Brit wankers in the 1948 British Nationality Act sense. And speaking of wanker Commonwealth cops, I had a ton of people over the weekend send me a couple of stories from Australia and Canada. I know very little about the New South Wales constabulary, except what I know from Aussie legal dramas like Crownies and Rake. In the latter, they seem to be as corrupt as every other institution in the state. In the former, they seem to spend most of their time getting their leg over attractive Crown prosecutors. Whatever the truth of either scenario... The actual police's encounter on Saturday afternoon with beautician René Altercritty did not reflect well on them. As you know, in many parts of the lockdown world, the citizens are permitted to leave their homes only to take some exercise once a day. Ms Altercritty belongs to a group committed to, quote, exercising its rights, which is a cute name. So they exercise... Uh, their rights by walking down Macquarie Street, the thoroughfare on which almost every important public building in Sydney stands, including Government House, the Parliament, the Law Courts, uh, which is why Macquarie Street is uh, a metonym. I think that's what they call it, a metonym uh, for the New South Wales government in the same way that uh, Whitehall is a metonym for the imperial government back in London. So obviously, if you're, quote, exercising your rights on Macquarie Street, it's a bit in your face as far as the state's concerned. Mr. Ol Ms. Altercritty further wore a piece of cardboard saying, if you don't know your rights, you don't have any. Magna Carta. So she was going Magna Carta on their medieval asses, as uh, Ezra Levant and I used to say when we were clobbering the Human Rights Commissions a decade or so back. She was also accompanied by her four-year-old son. 
Why some ten coppers would single Miss Altercritty out for their attentions is unclear from the tapes. They said they weren't arresting her, but nevertheless demanded her name and details. She refused, and the situation escalated, not to the officer's credit. The four-year-old ended up screaming, Mummy's not going, leave Mummy alone, before being ripped from Mummy's arms uh, and last seen being held in the air by one cop still screaming and kicking his legs against his abductor as Mummy was bundled into the police van. She was fined a thousand dollars, presumably for not observing social distancing. Uh, and then released. Opinion on social media was divided, but one is struck by how far the citizens will go to justify the new powers of the lockdown troopers. Oh, some said Miss Altergritty shouldn't have taken her four-year-old to a political protest. Actually, it's perfectly normal in free societies to take toddlers to political events. That's why successful politicians get quite good at kissing babies. Be that as it may, Ms. Altercritty could be the worst mum in the world, and it doesn't absolve the police. They have greater powers and thus are expected to be held to a higher standard. And when you need the best part of a dozen cops to hustle a slightly built woman into a police van while the four-year-old kid you've wrenched from her arms is crying and screaming and clearly traumatised in full view of all the mobile telephone cameras, you're doing it wrong. And you should actually probably look for another line of work. If this is by the book in New South Wales, then someone needs uh, to throw the book out. If social distancing is supposed to save lives, then the only people endangering lives are the coppers crowding round the woman and breathing all over the baby. If you seriously wanted to persuade the public that their loss of liberty was only temporary, you would be policing with a lighter, subtler touch. Conversely, if you wanted to feed their fears with every passing week that we are under a new regime where the right to leave one's dwelling is in the gift of the state permanently, then the New South Wales approach is what you'd use. To be sure, I mocked that Metropolitan Police officer in Bayswater the other day, uh, shutting down a string quartet performance while being awfully polite about it. But if these New South Wales clods had been on the scene, the guy's 400-year-old violin would have wound up crushed into shards and splinters on the pavement. The fact remains, when Trump is accused of separating illegal immigrant mothers from their babies on the southern border, it's a global outrage.
But when a citizen is separated from her child while strolling down a public street and posing no conceivable threat to anyone, that's just how it is in the new normal. Happy Mother's Day from your wanker coppers of the Commonwealth, the New South Wales Police. It's your Monday Mohammed. This Monday's Mohammeds are oldies but goodies. For almost two decades now, I periodically run variations of the same old, same old. Same sweet story. Muslims who are so offended if you suggest that Islam might be a violent religion that they threaten to kill you for it. The latest example of the genre comes from Scottsdale Community College in Arizona, where Professor Nicholas Damask, PhD, has taught political science for 24 years. This semester, in the course of a test, he posed certain questions regarding doctrinal and legal authority for Islamic terrorism, in, for example, the Medina verses of the Quran and the justification for terrorism within the context of jihad. You might disagree with that, but that would require you to think critically, apply analytic and research skills and rebut and argue, and frankly, that's all too much work. It's a lot easier just to get this Damask guy shut up for good. And so the usual death threats rolled in, and the professor's family, including his nine-year-old grandson and 85-year-old parents, are now in hiding. As I said, I've been following these stories a long time, and that's uh, all standard operating procedure. All that's changed over two decades is the speed with which the offending infidel's institutional colleagues capitulate. In this case... The anonymous Mohammed, who was affronted by the professor's test questions, didn't even have to make an official complaint. It was enough for a comment thread to flare up on the Scottsdale Community College's Instagram account and the professor's jelly-spine superiors threw the towel in, decreeing the anonymous Mohammedan to be in the right and awarding him full credit for the test. Professor Damask had a conference call with two members of the college president's cabinet, so-called, Kathleen Udicello, the dean of instruction, and Eric Sells, the public relations marketing manager. Uh, I'm old-fashioned enough to believe that an academic institution shouldn't have a public relations marketing manager. But if it does have one, he's not the guy who should be on a call like this. Uh, as it was, the principles of academic freedom and intellectual inquiry did not arise. Instead, immediately afterwards, the college president announced that SCC, quote, deeply apologizes, not just regularly apologizes, but deeply apologizes to the student and to anyone in the broader community who was offended, and decreed that the professor, quote, will be apologizing to the student shortly. This was news to Professor Damask, as was the subsequent announcement by Miss Udicello, that if he wished to raise the topic of terrorism in his class again, he would need to meet with an Islamic scholar to review the content, uh, to ensure presumably it meant the diktats of Islam. Uh, then the, I wonder whether they would do that, by the way, uh, with uh, an affronted evangelical Christian. Then they send over the apology to the student, 
that the professor would be required to sign. Quote, I know a simple apology may not be enough to address the harm that I caused, but I want to try to make amends. I will be reviewing all of my material to ensure there's no additional insensitivities. Unquote. Professor Damask is so far refusing to sign such an outrageous statement. And of course, the college's groveling has been deemed insufficient, with one Mohammed Alanami Sanad suggesting that some kid really needs to shoot up the school. If I recall correctly, uh, the last conversation I had with the late Christopher Hitchens was about an expression he'd coined in his review of my book, America Alone. Christopher wanted an end to what he called one-way multiculturalism. And I thought that was uh, a good enough phrase to get a book out of, but he reckoned that the central point about multiculturalism is that it is one way. It's not about celebrating other cultures, uh, but about destroying our own and its core values, such as free speech, free inquiry, the testing of ideas, all of which are out the door at Scottsdale Crapola College. This week's Monday Mohammeds, Mohammed Alanami Sanad and the irony-free death threaters are threatening to kill you for suggesting that Islam is violent and encouraged all the time in that by the civilizational sellouts of a worthless faculty. Mark's mailbox is on the air a couple of days ago. I said, um, something is coming to an end. This is not the normal behavior of self-regenerating societies. This is some kind of pitiful transitional stage. And I mentioned again uh, that the aged queen presently quarantined in Windsor Castle reminds me more and more of Franz Josef in the Habsburg Twilight. When you're older and you've seen more and you remember more than all the youngsters around scrabbling round and round on the hamster wheel of the hyper-present tense, you uh, know too much not to know that the jig is up. And it attracted a lot of comments, and we may do a special show on it, um, uh, expanding these thoughts. But among them was Andy, a Virginia member of the Stein Club, who said, where the hell is our courage? It's not as if going out for margaritas and Mexican food in a crowded restaurant once a week requires the fortitude of storming the beaches of Normandy. Smoking cigarettes daily is at least a 100 times more likely to kill you as mingling with a crowd of thousands at a sporting or entertainment event right now would be. We all need to connect snap out of it. Actually, <laughs> smoking cigarettes may protect you from <laughs> this thing. That's one of the many uh, bizarre uh, developments of the last couple of months. Brian from Minneapolis said, Yes, I agree. From a people who are willing to fight for freedom, knowing that they may not come back alive, to a people who expect others to fight their battles for them while they blog and tweet their views away. It no longer becomes a fight if you're not willing to take a risk. It becomes an activity. On the subject of snapping out of it, I remember a couple of years after 9-11, I started to get emails saying, oh, well, never mind this. It's going to take a second 9-11 before we get serious. And I said, well, if we don't get serious after a first 9-11, why would we get any more serious after a second? COVID-19, actually, in 9-11 virus terms is already the second, if you count SARS uh, in 2003 as the first. We didn't get serious after SARS. If we had done, 
uh, this would not have had the impact that it has had. So why would we get serious? If we didn't get serious after SARS, why would we get serious after a second SARS? Andy's right. We're, we're not being asked to storm the beaches of Normandy, which was nothing unusual. The acceptance of soldiering as the occasional and random burden of man was understood by every generation in human history. So it wasn't something that was the province of big butch macho warriors. The guy next to you in the foxhole was as likely to be a schnook accountant or, or the acne-faced, pigeon-chested kid in the feed store. I've mentioned before the line after 9-11 that the best way we could help would be to all go shopping. Soldiering by then had become a specialised professional activity, quarantined, as we now say, uh, off from the broader society. Not every man can be a soldier, but every man can be a consumer. We can all go off and buy that new coconut mint exfoliant all the boys are talking about at the gym. But what do you know? Here we are two decades on and it turns out we can't even go shopping. It's not that there were societies that stormed the beaches of Normandy and societies that don't. The beach storming is a point on a continuum. Uh, long-time listeners may recall that a few years back I had some sport with a Euro novelist called Oscar van den Bugard. He's a Dutch gay humanist, which, as I like to joke back then, was pretty much the trifecta of Eurocool. And a decade or so back, in an interview with the Belgian newspaper De Standard, uh, reflected on reflecting on um, Europe's accelerating Islamization, he concluded that the jig was up for the continental utopia he loved. But what could he do about it? Uh, quote, I am not a warrior, but who is, he shrugged. I have never learned to fight for my freedom. I was only good at enjoying it. That's a poignant epitaph as it is, but time drifts on and it goes beyond that. It's not just that you give up fighting for your freedom. You're so passive and inert that you give up enjoying it too. You're no longer, in Oscar van den Bugel's words, good at enjoying it. I'm struck by how even in America... Uh, never mind the continent. I don't. The, the urge to push back is so limited. In these protests, for example, I don't see a lot of young people, and I wonder why. And then I think about what people are like when they are actually out of their houses, frantically checking their phones for incoming texts, plugged into earbuds so that they can listen to whatever they're being Instagrammed, uh, rather than the hum of life in the great outdoors. Maybe. Maybe they're all happier inside, as in that E.M. Forster novella I serialized last year. The machine stopped. So much of life is interior and virtual now. What's the difference? There are old lessons at play here. A society that is defeated by an external enemy can rise again. A society that defeats itself is highly unlikely to. And you sense both China and Islam and a few other people as well have figured that out. And we haven't, precisely because they are old lessons. And man, who cares about anything old? Mark Stein's Last Call. Underlying Conditions. That's what we're told most people who die of COVID-19 have, underlying conditions. But this particular victim can claim a unique underlying condition. He was mauled by his tiger. 
Night after night for more than a decade, Siegfried and Roy dazzled the Vegas Strip with their feats of magic and animal mastery, performing seemingly impossible illusions alongside a menagerie of wild animals. Over more than 5,000 shows, the Las Vegas legends performed flawlessly, and so did their prowling, growling co-stars. That is, until Roy Horn's 59th birthday in 2003, when in the middle of a performance at the MGM Grand, a 400-pound Siberian tiger named Manticore pounced on the magician, biting his neck and ending the iconic duo's career. 45 minutes from the show, the lights go off, and there's just a spotlight on Roy Horn. He just walks out, just a tiger. Montecor seemed confused and wasn't responding to commands. While trying to get the tiger's attention, Roy fell over its right front paw. That's when he was bitten on the neck and dragged. Siegfried and Roy were born respectively in Bavaria and Lower Saxony and both loved magic. But the wildlife side of the act came from Roy. His mother's friend's husband had started the Bremen Zoo which gave a 10-year-old boy a rare opportunity to befriend wild animals at an early age. Roy met Siegfried on a cruise ship. They started a double act, and an impresario brought them to Las Vegas in 1967. They were kings of the strip until the night Montecor, the tiger brought the curtain down. Siegfried and Roy's show, which ran for 13 years and drew in $45 million a year, is now long since shuttered. They maintained that this was an accident, that Roy was falling ill, that the tiger was trying to protect and help him. En route to the hospital, Roy insisted Montecor is a great cat. Make sure no harm comes to Montecor. The legendary magicians, known for their animal illusions, told investigators at the time and the public that Roy had suffered a stroke on stage, prompting Manticor to lunge. So you think that he picked you up as tigers do, their yeah. cubs? With the cubs, yeah. You felt nothing? Investigators found the tiger blameless, and he later returned to Siegfried and Roy's home. He was a great cat, a delight to audiences, but he ended the act and forced Siegfried and Roy into retirement. There would be one final appearance. In 2009, they returned to the stage and with Montecor. It was a benefit performance for the Brain Institute that treated Roy. What was that like for you as you watched Roy slowly, sort of unsteadily walk out to assume the stage again. <laughs> it really moved you. And the people, ah, that was showtime. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 75, Roy Horn. He is survived by his partner Siegfried, but not by the tiger Montecor, who died in 2014. 11 years after dragging Roy off stage. Faye Rendoth was not a Las Vegas headliner and certainly had no such exotic underlying condition as Roy's tiger wounds. If anything, she died of an overlying condition. G'day, Miriam. We've just learned that 92-year-old Faye Rendoth died yesterday. She's the 17th resident from Newmarch to die after contracting coronavirus. Her family has released a statement, and I just want to share some of that with you now. Faye's our granddaughter says, 
her story is a real love story. She uh, grew up in the Blue Mountains, which is where she raised her family until she moved to Newmarch very recently. She leaves behind three daughters, eight grandchildren and three grand grand great-grandchildren. Uh, her, her granddaughter says she was a very sharp and uh, quite, quite healthy for her age. She tested positive to coronavirus three weeks ago at Newmarch but didn't really show many symptoms. She says that the uh, lack of physical interaction was detrimental to her health and it was heartbreaking not being able to spend time with her grandmother in her final days. As Mrs Randolph's family sees it, she had very mild symptoms and quickly recovered from the coronavirus, but the quarantine destroyed her will to live. Nan recovered from COVID-19, but she didn't recover from the isolation, said her granddaughter, Savannah Robinson. It was heartbreaking to not be able to sit by her side in her final days and be with her and speak to her. She survived the disease, but not the cure. And this sad end on the eve of Mother's Day, all because an otherwise healthy woman lived in a building visited by someone with a slight cough. Been close to 70 infections linked to Newmarch House. Comes after a worker apparently showed up there. She had mild coronavirus symptoms, just a scratchy throat and a cold. She worked six shifts at the centre and it's led to this mass outbreak at this facility. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 92, Faye Rendoff. Antonio Gonzalez Pacheco's underlying condition was a dark secret. Spain was a dictatorship until 45 years ago, and therefore there are a lot of old men with dark secrets. Senor Gonzalez Pacheco, a policeman by profession, was not in fact that old. He was still in his 20s when Generalissimo Franco died in 1975. In the early 70s, older men had grasped that Francoist Spain after Franco would be something other, to one degree or another, and they began, if only psychologically, to make their accommodations with a vague and uncertain future. Senor Gonzalez, or Billy El Nino as he was known, Billy the Kid, was different. He was an enthusiastic Francoist to the end and to the fullest. And people remember. Relatives of some of those who suffered under the regime of Spanish dictator Francisco Franco celebrate on the streets of Buenos Aires as an Argentine judge orders the arrest of four men accused of torture. A lawyer representing the families says it's a step towards ending impunity for members of Franco's government. The accused can now be detained anywhere in the world, which basically guarantees that if they leave Spain, they'll be detained by Interpol and extradition will follow. For the families, it represents progress, but there's still a long way to go. If the accused remain in Spain, they may never be arrested. There, the country's 1977 amnesty law, which shields any Franco-era crime from being brought to trial, remains in force. Billy El Nino was one of the men named by that Argentine court. He had won a lot of medals, and the medals bring financial benefits, including a pension 150% more generous than that of other policemen. The Spanish High Court ruled that he could not be extradited because of the statute of limitations. But the case put his dark secret out in the open. 
And Pedro Almodovar produced a film about the victims of Senor Gonzalez and his associates, El Silencio de Otros, The Silence of Others. Es simplemente un olvido, una amnistía de todos para todos. Un olvido de todos para todos. The men who'd maintained the Franco dictatorship at its height were in their 80s, 90s. They faded and they died. But Billy El Nino was young enough to still be around when the hard bargain between the old Spain and the new, referred to in that film clip, was beginning to fray. In the new Spain, it was absurd and outrageous that Jose Maria Galante should find himself living on the same street as the man who tortured him, and so strolled down the sidewalk to do video pieces outside Billy the Kid's apartment house. Aquí vive Antonio González Pacheco, alias Billy El Perhaps he could have outrun them all, Argentine judges, Spanish filmmakers, his victims, but he could not outrun COVID-19, dead of the Chinese coronavirus. At the age of 73, Billy El Nino, Antonio Gonzalez Pacheco. That's our show for today. We had a busy weekend at Stein Online, starting with our Mark Stein Club third birthday edition of our Clubland Q&A, with lots of great questions from Stein Club members around the world. I do thank all those first week founding members who've been signing up for a fourth year. I thank you very much. And, and as I always say, we do welcome new members too. Uh, particularly around this anniversary. For our Saturday movie date, Kathy Shadle was mad as hell, but decided she could take Howard Beale and Network One Mo Time. As always on Mother's Day, we add my traditional salute to the lugubrious heyday of the mother song. And given that live theatre's sleeping the big sleep right now and probably till next year, our Sunday song selection celebrated the hip hooray and ballyhoo, the lullaby of Broadway. I hope you'll want to check out one or three of the foregoing as a new week commences. And if you're only just getting into this new run of our little shows, all the Mark Stein audio shows you've missed are handily archived in a Netflix-style tile format. Click on audio at the Stein Online menu bar, and from the drop-down menu, select The Mark Stein Show. Oh, and check out our new RSS uh, podcast thingamy uh, for improved listening via your telephonic devices and motor vehicles. That's it from us. Stay safe. Stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.